Literally, that's it. Okay. All right. Well, it's good to be here with you guys. Um, yeah, so if this is terrible also, Drew didn't say this, but you can also be upset at Drew because it was terrible, right? So um, anyway, I'm excited to be with you guys this weekend and to talk about some of these things. Um, I shared a little bit about this in the video that I sent Drew, but, um, you know, in Exodus 33, we really have this incredible moment where Moses uh, asks for something phenomenal, right? He says to God, show me your glory. And this is a far cry from Exodus chapter 3, when Moses, the shepherd, is on the mountain, sees a burning bush, right, and then finds out God's in the bush, and when he finds that out, he runs away and hides, right? And now, Exodus chapter 33 He's in the presence of God, and yet he says to God, show me your glory. A lot has happened from Exodus 3 to chapter 33. Moses has seen all sorts of stuff that God has done. Uh, God has used him in ways that Moses never could have dreamed. God rescued his people um, and brought them out of Egypt to himself there at Mount Sinai. And in this moment, then, uh, uh, standing there on the, uh, at Mount Sinai, right, God offers himself to the people of Israel. And Moses is on the mountain 40 days and nights and receives this book of the law. Meanwhile, at the foot of the mountain, the people are building a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping it. And finally, God says to Moses, all right, things have gotten a little out of hand down there. You need to go down and clean things up. So Moses goes down and does that, comes back up. And when he comes back up, God essentially says to him, hey, so I know I've given you this plan for the tabernacle, for me to move in among you as a people. But really, if this is the kind of things that you're going to continue to do, I, the tabernacle project's off. Like, if, if I were to go with you, if I were to dwell in your midst, like, you'd all be dead. And Moses mourns, and, and the people mourn, and Moses basically comes back to God and says, I, we can't do that. Like, I, I can't accept that. If, if you won't go with us, if your presence won't be among us, then I don't want to go at all. In fact, just like, kill me now, right? And through this dialogue, God ends up telling Moses, okay, I'll do what you want. My presence will go with you. But this damage that was done to the relationship because of Israel's sin uh, really shows, I think, in, in Moses' response to God. Right. He's, he's so distraught and torn uh, because of what he's been talking about with God. And so I think at this point, he hears God saying, yes, I'm going to go with you. But he needs more assurance. He needs more reassurance than that. And so he says, will you give me a sign? Will you help me understand that you actually are with us? Will you show me your glory? And so God phenomenally says, Okay. You can't see my face and live, but I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And then Exodus chapter 3, 4, he puts Moses in the hole in a rock and he covers him with his hand. And he passes by and then he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think those words are the goodness that God said he would allow Moses to see. A.W. Tozer once said, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
I love that quote. I've loved it for years. Uh, mostly because I think it's true, right? Like, so if you think about our culture, we like to form uh, a God after our own image. What comes into our culture's mind when it thinks about God says a lot about our culture. And I think so for our culture today, I think God would just be the most non-judgmental, the most all-inclusive, the most uh, accepting of all truth being in the universe. Right? That's who our culture, I think, would like God to be. I, th- I think to a degree it's true. What comes into your mind when you think about God is so important. And yet, um, a couple weeks ago, I was reading uh, and I came across this quote by C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. I was reading in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God, it is not. How God thinks of us is more important. Not just more important, but infinitely more important. How we think of God is not important, except in as much as it is compared to how God thinks of us. I think Lewis has a point, right? Like it's important for us to think about God and to change our view of God. But if, if we have a mistaken idea of what God thinks of us, it's going to skew our whole perspective. Now, I'm naturally a peacemaker, so when two of my literary heroes, C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer, seem to have a disagreement I would like to try to resolve that disagreement. And I actually think there's, there's a tension there, but uh, perhaps not an unresolvable one. You see, I think Tozer is right. It is so important for us uh, to, to reshape our view of God around how he has revealed himself. But this is what I want to talk about this weekend. If we don't first begin with how God sees us, we will never see God well. And so, this weekend, I really just want to answer that second question. How does God see us? And in the process, I think, we'll answer the other. How then should we see God? I'm excited for what we're going to talk about this weekend and have been spending a lot of time praying uh, through this just for myself personally but also for you guys, and um, I hope it can be an experience of worship for us as we try to stand there on the mountain with Moses and understand what it is that he heard. So let's worship, and then we'll talk soon. So, uh, my wife, 
April and I, back in 2010, moved to the Middle East. We had a one-year-old at the time. Uh, his name is Emmett. He's our oldest. And um, growing up, my wife never uh, was big on Santa Claus in her family, right? Like, uh, maybe Christmas and all that, you know, like normal stuff. But like Santa Claus, it was like, yeah, not a really big deal in their house. So when we got married, right, there's all sorts of things you got to like work out. Like, your family does this, my family does this. Uh, she was like kind of insistent, like, we don't really do Santa Claus. I was like, that's fine. So uh, <clears throat> we moved to the Middle East in December. Um, our oldest was one year old, and um, so, you know, he had no idea about Christmas or anything. And uh, one thing you learn when you live in a different context, in a different culture for a while, is that, um, like, holidays look different overseas, right? Like, they, they don't celebrate the thing, same things that we do in the same ways in other parts of the world. And so we live in Bahrain, in, in the Arab Gulf, a Muslim country, and so, like, they don't celebrate Christmas at all. So for the first couple of years we lived there, like, we just kind of got to do, like, whatever we wanted for Christmas, and, like, there was no, like, you know, big things of Santa Claus anywhere, or any, you know, big Christmas decorations of, like, Rudolph or whatever. And so we just kind of, like, got to talk about Jesus, like, real Christians, right? <laughs> um, and that's what my son thought, like, Christmas was all about. Anyway, so fast forward a few years, uh, and uh, we were actually, uh, my wife was pregnant with our third, we've been in Bahrain for several years now, and my mom comes over to visit uh, to help with the uh, kind of the end of the pregnancy and then the first few weeks uh, with our third child. And so uh, while my mom is there, um, it's in November, and um, we just had a great time with her there. Uh, She, of course, loved getting to hang out with Emmett and stuff. Um, and, you know, they were buddies, right? And uh, towards the end of her time, when she was getting ready to go back, um, one day uh, I was sitting talking with Emmett at, around lunchtime. My mom wasn't around. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, Hey, Dad, can you sing me that scary song? I was like, that scary song? What are you talking about? He's like, the one that my mom sings. It's like, my mom was teaching you some scary songs? Tell me more, Right? And uh, I, I, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I was like, I don't know what you mean, buddy. Um, so the conversation kind of moved on. Later that night, uh, we were all sitting in the living room. Emma was getting ready to go to bed. And um, uh, we, she was, uh, we were singing him his songs, you know, for bed. And uh, he, he leans over and says, uh, says to my mom, he goes, Man, Mom, will you sing me that scary song? I was like, yeah, Mom. He asked me that at lunch today. What the heck is he talking about? And she's like, I have no idea. Uh, he's like, you know, the scary song. What scary song, Evan? And he's like, you know, the one about the scary guy. <laughs> like, well, this is great. Like, April and I would like to both look at my mom. We're like, so what exactly has been going on? Right? What have you been doing? You're like torturing my son and giving him nightmares. And my mom is just laughing. She's like, I, I literally have no idea what in the world he could be talking about. So we laugh about this for a while. We're like, we don't get it. Finally, finally. I was like, Emmett, you got to help us out, buddy. Can you, like, can you sing, like, a little bit of the song uh, that, that, like, Mamma sings to you? He's like, okay. And, like, I kid you not. So this, this is what he goes. He goes, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus. Is so, like, my mom had been singing this song 
to my son, and in his brain, he didn't know who this guy was, but it was some scary dude with claws. And if you think about it, the song is terrifying, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake, whatever you do, because he's coming to get you. Oh, my wife and I and my mom, we just died. I mean, we laughed so long. I like, I like busted out our video camera, and I was like, so we have this video of us, like, with Emmett on the couch, and he's like, he's talking about it. And so that, after he, like, finishes telling us about the scary guy, Santa Claus, we're like, so is Santa Claus coming to get you? And he's like, not tonight, but tomorrow night. Okay. But I wonder if sometimes we think about God like scary Santa Claus, right? Like maybe we don't, maybe we don't like actually think about God like that uh, in our day, but maybe we would say like, well, yeah, kind of in the Old Testament, I could kind of see like scary Santa Claus being God, right? This God who gets angry with people and like he keeps like a nice list and an naughty list and like you got to do, you got to like make sure you check the right boxes because like Santa Claus is coming. If you're not careful, he's going to like get you, right? A whole big bag of nasty. He's going to bring it uh, more than coal in your stocking. He'll like turn you to coal. So, right? Like we think of God, I think sometimes that like he is the scary Santa Claus. Well, I'm not sure that even the Old Testament would really support this idea. Um, but I think for a lot of us, this is, this is how we view the Old Testament God. You got to make sure you do the right thing. And then you'll be on God's good list, right? So here's a question I want to start with tonight, especially as uh, we think about the book of Exodus. The question is this. What did the Israelites do in order to earn God's favor, right? So as, as Israel um, is kind of preparing to get to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, I want to know um, what different things did they do throughout really the book of Exodus uh, to to kind of merit what they had received. So I'm going to do something um, maybe a little bit different. It's going to be a little more interactive, okay? So um, I'm going to put some groups up here, okay? Um, well, maybe here in a second. This is going to happen. All right. So, nope. Here's the question. There it is. It's fame. So what good thing did Israel do to earn God's favor? So let's see. This is what I like to do. Uh, we've got six groups. So let's do like, like two, two rows on each side. So I want you guys to look at Exodus 1 and 2. And you guys look at Exodus 3 through 5. And you guys look at Exodus 6 through 8. You guys do Exodus 9 through 12. Um, you guys look smart in the first row. So you guys do 13 through 15, and then in front row, you guys can do 63. So you're looking for the answer to this question. I don't know how you want to do this. If you want to, like, you know, read it together, go around and read it. Maybe you want to, like, do it, a couple of you together, and then powwow at the end. But make a list, okay? Make a list if you can. Check it twice. Check it twice. You got it.
Come, let us know shrewdly in our life, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies to fight against us. They said, Pacifying over them, let them revert. They built their favor and store cities and bones, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were dreadful the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter and their hearts hurts, and ordered and breaking them all kinds of work in the And on their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So if I could maybe provide a helpful hint as well, just so you may not have time to like read every word, because Frank has spent a whole lot of time doing this. So, so feel free to like like divide it up if you do want to read every word, but like you know divide it up in your group, or just like do some skimming, okay, and see because you're just looking for the answer to this question. Uh, what did they do in order to bring God's faith? Exodus 1 and 2, group, what do you got for us? What good thing did Israel do to earn God's favor? Okay, they complained. All right. They suffered. Okay. Anything else? Exodus 1 and 2. Okay. Wow, okay, so we got nothing from group one. Thank you for your effort. We'll see how we go. Okay, actually, it's three, two, five. The closest they got was like they cried out to them, but they didn't really do it. Okay, so they cried out. Okay, all right. We're doing great here. Okay, next group, Exodus 6 through 8. Basically, what they said. Okay, what? 
Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> 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 Just flashing an extra. Okay. Uh, Exodus 9 through 12. Okay, so that they would not die. <laughs> yeah, okay. Awesome. Wonderful. Good. Okay, anything else? Okay, more, more plagues, you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, Exodus 13 through 15. Okay. 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 So they don't eat. Well, maybe they, maybe they do, but they're told not to. Okay. 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 We're not doing so great, are we? Okay. Um, Exodus sixteen through eighteen. Okay, we're, not, we're moving in a different direction. Okay, so the opposite of, they did the opposite of what he said. Yeah, he gave them, like, manna from the sky, just out of nowhere, and they didn't even follow his simple command to not leave any on the ground there. Okay. Yeah. They did nothing good. They okay. crumbled a lot. Okay, they crumbled a lot. They complained about free food from the sky. Okay. All right. Okay. Well. <clears throat> so we've got a long list of, let's see, what do we have? So they... They complained, and they grumbled, and then they complained, and then they put blood on the doorpost so they wouldn't die, and they maybe or maybe not ate unleavened bread, and then they complained some more, right? Okay. Okay, so that, that's all of Exodus up to Exodus 19. Okay, so, so here's a question. What good thing did Israel do in order to earn God's favor? Okay, I actually think you guys did really well at that assignment, so. Yes. The answer is nothing. Have you thought about this before? Exodus 19, verse 4. So they're finally at Mount Sinai. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians... And how I bore you on eagle's wings to myself. God could have chosen any number of images to describe how he treated Israel. And the image he chose was that of an eagle carrying its young. Not because his young was especially capable or attractive or wonderful or obedient. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there it is, right? There's the requirements, all that, all those laws they have to keep, right? But notice, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. In other words, if you do what I'm asking you to do, then... We can have an incredibly special relationship. God basically makes a proposal to Israel, right? It's like the most unexpected marriage proposal in history, right? 
You have the king who like takes this like dirty peasant off the street and then like proposes marriage. Right? Like what good thing did this peasant do? Nothing. God just chose her. Right? Now, once she's chosen, she has to agree to the marriage. Once she enters into that marriage, there's going to be some rules, right? Like anyone who gets married makes a commitment to the other person, a promise, a covenant to do certain things because you are married. But before the marriage, Israel has done nothing to deserve this. You guys with me? Sort of? Yes? So, let's look at Deuteronomy real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Deuteronomy is sort of like Moses' uh, final words on the good life, right? Like he's getting ready to die, and so there's this collection of sermons um, as he kind of looks back over his whole life and says all this stuff to this. Listen to what he says in verse 5. In case people start to feel really good about themselves. This is what he says in chapter 9, verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Not because of your righteousness. Israel did not get saved because they were good. They did not get saved because they kept the law. They got saved simply because God was God. Okay? Here's another one. Deuteronomy chapter 7 this time. Verses 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Listen to this. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Did you guys know that was in the Old Testament? It is because the Lord loves you The law, then, is not some sort of like legal straitjacket that God forced the people into. The law is a gift, just like salvation is a gift from a gracious lawgiver. And so, as we think about this, we, I think, need to adjust the way we think about God. God is not when he describes himself first and foremost to Moses in Exodus 34, as merciful and compassionate, gracious and compassionate, he is not just like blowing smoke, right? Instead he's saying, this is fundamental to my nature. This is at the core of who I am. I saved you not because of your righteousness, but because I wanted to. 
You are saved, not because of any good work that you have done, but because of my great grace for you. Now that you are saved, now there are things to do, works to do, in order to work out that salvation. Is this sounding familiar? Kind of like the New Testament? Right. Salvation is and has always been by grace through faith. They were never saved because of their good works. They were always saved because God was a good God who chose out of his grace to extend kindness to them. Now, when God describes himself as merciful and compassionate, I think sometimes for us, we have a hard time fully understanding his compassion, Right? If you're anything like me, um, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between compassion and apathy. Like, sometimes I, I think maybe God's, maybe God's being compassionate, but maybe God just doesn't care, right? Like, maybe he's just, like, apathetic towards my sin or something. But there actually is a big difference between compassion and apathy. Let me give you an example. So let's say... Uh, so at our house, we live in a neighborhood on the kind of on the on a corner, and so we get not a ton of traffic, but some traffic. Let's say I'm working out in the front yard, and uh, my four children come out. Yes, four of them. Uh, soon to be five. Yeah. So they come out right, and they're they're wanting to play, and so I, I call them over and I say, "All right, Emmett, Madeline, Eviana, Rowan, you may not play in the street. Don't go in the street at all. If you go in the street." You're going to have to go inside and sit on your bed for 10 minutes. Okay? You guys got it? I get a yes from each one of them, and then they go off and play. Right? So I turn around and start working again. Now, let's say I, I, I turn around a minute or two later, and I see them running out into the street, running back to the sidewalk. I say, whatever. Turn around and start working again. Turn around a few minutes later, there they go again, running out in the street. This continues for the next 15, 20, 30 minutes. I look over every few minutes, and there they are. All right, stupid kids. Then along comes a car, and one of them happens to be out in the road. The car hits him, fall down. Serves him right. I told him, I did my job, right? I told him not to get out in the street, and then they did. So it's their own stupid fault. That's apathy, and also evil, okay? Um, But that would be apathy, right? I don't care what happens, I don't really care. Whatever. Compassion, on the other hand, would be maybe me telling them, hey, don't go out in the street. If you go out in the street, you're going to have to go sit on your bed. I get to work. I look over a few minutes later, and they're running out into the street. Then, maybe I call their name. I get their attention somehow. I look at them, right? And I let them know, hey, remember what I said? Remember the words that I spoke to you? Don't play in the street. Right? I may not even have to say anything. It may just be my look. That would be enough. And yet, it reminds me. Okay? Now, in the moment, I may say, you know what? I'm not going to send you to your room. I'm just going to let them keep on playing. Right? And so they might continue to play. Now, if they continued then to run into the street, I would have to punish them for that. Right? 
But in that initial moment, a response of apathy and a response of compassion may look almost exactly identical. There is no punishment. But the motivation behind those responses couldn't be more different. The reality is, God is not apathetic towards your sin, right? It's not that God sees your sin and is like, eh, right? Rather, it's that God sees us in our sin and he, he rises up to acknowledge it, to see what we done, we've done. And yet, instead of responding with what we deserve, he acts out of his kindness and mercy and compassion. God is a God who is fundamentally merciful and compassionate. This is just who God is. Okay. So how does this impact us? Well, I think it means we have to see God as a fundamentally merciful and gracious God. Even in the Old Testament. Right? If we don't start with a view of God as merciful and compassionate, then I think we've missed it. Right? One of the hardest things, I, so I teach Old Testament at Ozark Christian College. And um, so I know this is like kind of my thing, like the Old Testament stuff. Um, but man, I hear it all the time. People are like, yeah, God just like, God is so angry. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Uh, God's so angry in the Old Testament. And, you know, it's just like so much like works-based religion in the Old Testament. And yet, as we look in the Old Testament, I just, I, I, I just don't think that's true. I think all along, God has been a God who saves people by grace. Okay, so what's, what's the takeaway for us? Well, remember, uh, we're talking about Exodus 34, right? Exodus 34, verse 6, comes in the context of Moses asking to see God's goodness. And coincidentally, right, all of the ways that God describes himself in Exodus 34 are ways that he relates to people. Do you notice that? He doesn't describe himself in the abstract. He describes how he relates to people. So, here's the point then. God is good. So, I am saved only because of his grace. Just like in the Old Testament. So now, I am saved only because of his grace. It is not because of any good thing that I've done. It is not because of any righteousness that I carry with me any more than it was Israel. Rather, I am saved only because of grace. Now, I know we know that, right? Like, this is not new information for any of you, that you are saved by grace. But sometimes it's difficult for us to figure out how to, how to work this out in our lives. So if we're going to ask the question then, okay, so how does God see us? I think the reality then is this. God is not waiting on me to perform. If my salvation comes by grace, not because of good things that I've done, then that means that I don't have to do anything in order to earn God's favor. Right? 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 I don't have to do anything in order to earn God's favor. Now, I'm not talking about the works that I do once I am saved in order to continue to work out my salvation. 
I'm talking about the favor that God gives to me simply because he is a good and gracious God. It is not dependent on the things that I do. It is simply because out of his grace he has chosen to give it to me. And if that's the case, then I don't have to perform, which is actually really good news. Exactly. I am really screwed up. And all the time, I, I feel this pressure, right? I've got to do this thing or be like this in order to maybe prove myself to God. I was just talking to my wife about this uh, this week. And she goes, it's, it's taken me decades to stop trying to perform, right? She said, I, I felt like in college, I, so much of what I did was done because maybe this will help God like me a little bit more. It's not about you performing or checking certain boxes or looking like just a really, really great Christian because then, maybe, then God will really accept you and then God will really love you. No, God, God looks at you in your sin just like he looked at Israel in their sin and he says, I love you and I will save you. You have to respond you can't sit in Egypt. You can't not put blood over the door and expect to stay alive. Right? It requires something from us, but that does not make it less of a free gift. So if, if God's not waiting on me to perform, that means that I also don't have to try to help people see me in a better light. These are just the things that I struggle with. So just giving them to you. So I don't, I don't have to try to make people like me. I don't have to try to like talk in a certain way that I think people will respect me. Or I don't have to try to be funny so that people will like me because, because I know God loves me. I know like unconditionally God in his mercy and compassion fully, totally, completely loves me. Right? So I don't have to compete like, I don't have to try to make people like me. I don't have to compete with others for position. I don't have to, like, brag about stuff in my life in order to try to boast about what I've done so I can feel better about myself. Does that make you think better of me? It doesn't matter, right? Because, because God, out of his grace, loves us. And he accepts us. And so... It's not about our performance. I also don't have to try to make people happy. Maybe some of you um, have struggled with your whole this with struggled with this your whole life, because maybe your parents uh, just never could be really happy with you or with what you've done. Have you thought about the fact that God is happy with you? Right, that God loves you even without you performing or doing. God looks at us and he says, I choose to be merciful and gracious to you. And I think the words that he spoke to Israel are the words that he speaks to us. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your good, words, good works. It's because I love you. 
in many ways, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about this weekend is like really basic. But if we really wrap our minds around some of these things, I, I actually think it can transform us. So here's a question, I guess, to leave with you today. How would your life change today? How would things change now? If you accepted the love that God has given to you, How would your life change now if you stopped trying to perform? If you just accepted God's mercy and compassion? Here's what I want to do. I want to take um, maybe three or four or five minutes, and I'd like you to find uh, two or three people maybe that you're sitting close to, and I just want you guys to circle up or just turn around and, um, and just kind of share your answer to that question. Talk with some people about what this might look like in your life. What it might look like tomorrow for you to wake up believing this with all of your heart. And just try to think through this in more of a communal relationship. So why don't you take a few minutes, uh, turn around, and do that now.